It is good to worship the Lord. If you turn in your Bibles, please, to Psalm 42. Psalm number 42. And I would encourage you to have a Bible open uh, or have one of your electronic devices. We'll be looking at the psalm and reading it, obviously, but we'll have opportunity to cross-reference it a lot uh, as we go through it. It's been said that a person can live 40 days without food, about four days without water, about four minutes without air, but not a second without hope. Hopelessness, and I'm talking here about real hopelessness, is deflating, even for some people, paralyzing. And our world thrives on hope, right? People in our world are looking for hope, and they will seek that hope in just about everything. They'll, they'll run to one thing, look for hope there. If there's not hope there or hope is exhausted, they'll run to something else. They'll try that out for a while. If it doesn't turn out to be sufficient or satisfying, the good of something else. And they'll move from one thing to the next until the source of hope for them dries up. And when a person finally loses hope, such despair will set in that A person will not even want to live any longer. After a noticeable decline in the 1980s and 90s, statistics from the past decade showed an increase in suicide rates, especially among teenagers. A journalist by the name of Patricia Holbrook wrote in an article for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution a few years ago. This was before COVID. That COVID has caused it to even skyrocket further. But this is before COVID. She said this. Hopelessness is the feeling at the center of each suicide attempt. Despaired souls look at their past and present and lose the faith to believe that there, is, there can be a better, brighter future. Their hearts become anchored in the bleakness of current circumstances, and thus death seems to be the only answer to end their agony. Can you remember a time in your life maybe when you felt a sense of hopelessness, maybe even this kind of hopelessness, to the point where you were in deep despair, maybe to the point where you even wanted to take your own life. Do you remember your state of mind? Do you remember how you felt? What was your outlook on life? What was your outlook on the world? How did you respond during that time? How did you make it through? What turned things around for you? How was your hope restored? Or maybe you're here this morning going through a season of hopelessness. Maybe you're in a place of deep despair right now. How do you deal with your hopelessness? Where do you turn? How do you respond? Who can help you? You know, Christians are not immune to periods of hopelessness. We read in Scripture about faithful men who were afflicted by moments of deep despair, even to the point where they wanted to die. Men like David and Elijah, Jonah, Jeremiah, Jesus himself suffered such intense anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane. We will face times of hopelessness if we haven't yet already. And I think it's important that we acknowledge that, right? Spiritual maturity, growing in our sanctification, does not make us immune to hopelessness. But we understand that as God sanctifies us, he instructs us and he equips us and how to stand in the face of hopelessness. So how do we deal with despair? Where do we turn to to find hope? 
I'd like for us to look at Psalms 42 and 43 this morning. I think that these Psalms answer that question for us. In fact, as we read it, I think you'll see just almost how modern this, these Psalms sound, right? They capture for us the, 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 the sentiments of, of modern day times, modern day wrestling with hopelessness just as freshly and poignantly as they did 3,000 years ago when these Psalms were first written. At the same time, they not only bring about this sense of hopelessness and make us sense, sense that and feel that very deeply, it also points us to the solution. It points us to the answer. It directs us to where we can find hope, real hope, to persevere through despair. Now, I don't have time to explain why, but Psalms 42 and 43 were probably an original, one psalm originally, before the chapter divisions were put into the Bible, they were probably originally one psalm. And so I want to read them together and study them together as if they were one psalm. So when we read Psalm 42, we're just going to go directly into Psalm 43. So Psalm 42, to the choir master, a mosquito of the sons of Korah. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. While I say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mazar. Deep calls the deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone out over me. By day the Lord commands His steadfast love, and at night His song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him my salvation, and my God. I think the key to understanding this psalm is in that refrain that we see in Psalm 42, verse 5, and verse 11, and Psalm 43, verse 5. It's repeated three times, which is meant to make it emphatic. That seems to be the, the main idea that the psalmist wants to put forward, the key theme, the key point he wants to make. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And so I want to use that as sort of the way that we enter into the psalm and think about how Christ is our hope. 
And you'll notice in that refrain that there are two parts to it. It begins with a question and it ends with an exhortation, right? The question is, why are you cast down on my soul and why are you in turmoil within me? The exhortation is hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So let's use that as sort of the two parts of our outline, if you will, for this message this morning. Let's think first about that question. It's a hopeless question. Why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? We see the sense of hopelessness there, right? He's asking himself the question as to why he is downcast. And this question, I think, reveals the problem that he's facing. And what is that problem? Well, he is cast down. Or to say it a different way, maybe an easier way, I think the NIV translates it this way, is he is downcast. He's cast down. He's downcast. That word cast down literally means to bow down or to prostrate oneself. And it's oftentimes used in in context of of sadness and despair where it means to sink down under the weight of sorrow, to be depressed and sad. You are so overcome by grief. You're so overcome by burdens that it weighs you down and presses you down to the ground. And that seems to be the issue here, the fact that he is downcast or cast down. The psalmist here is not simply experiencing a temporary state of melancholy. He is a deep sorrow, a deep depression. And this depression strikes at the very core of his being. Notice that the psalmist here is carrying on a conversation with himself, right? Where he says, why are you cast down, O my soul? He's carrying on a conversation with himself at the very deepest level of his existence. That word soul in Hebrew refers to a, a person's being, the essence of a person's being, the core of one's existence, who I really am, what I'm really about. And that word soul appears seven times in this prayer. The psalmist here is exposing the reality that lies at the very deepest levels of his being. There's a deep sadness. There's a deep despair at the core of who he is, and it afflicts the rest of his life. And we see that sorrow expressed throughout the psalm. For example, in verse 3, he says, My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? The word for tears there in Hebrew means weeping. Not just a few tears coming down. He is weeping. And the, the phrase day and night is a Hebrew way of saying continually. In other words, this guy, the psalmist here, is crying constantly. There is no relief from his weeping. It's like, almost like he's ugly crying, right? He is so sorrowful, he has moved to tears, and all he can do is weep. In verse 5, we saw the word turmoil. Why are you in turmoil within me? And that word turmoil echoes the thought of cast down in the previous line. But that word turmoil means to growl like a bear. It's like this very guttural groaning from from deep within. And so we see that 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 turmoil is internalized. Something's happening on the outside that's causing him to be in turmoil inside. There's this sort of inward moaning that reflects a deeply rooted despair. It's almost as if this word indicates that his sadness is so deep it can't be expressed in words. In verse 7, deep calls to deep. At the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and all your waves have gone over me. He feels inundated by his situation. It's almost like if you've been to the beach before with high waves. You can imagine wave upon wave upon wave crashing over you where you can't really even get up out of the the water to get a a breath of air. In verse 10, 
He says, as with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversary has taunted me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? It's as if a sword has pierced him to the bone, has cut him inside so deeply with this excruciating, painful wound. It's a wound that he expresses as even greater and far more painful, far more excruciating than being actually cut with a sword. So the tone of this entire psalm is despair and lamentation. I think we... One of the things that's so beautiful and profound about this psalm is that it comes out. 3,000 years later, it comes out. We can feel it ourselves as we, as we read it. We know what he's feeling because many of us have felt it too. And so in deep sorrow and despair, the psalmist cries out to God. Well, why? Why? To go back to his original question, why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Why is he cast down? Why is he in turmoil? Why has he reached this point of despair? What is the reason for this problem that has led him to this great sorrow? Well, the answer comes in verse 2. Psalm 42, verse 2. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where shall I come and appear before God? The psalmist here feels he's he's been cut off from God. He has been cut off from God. He, He has not been able to go to God's house, to the temple, to worship God. He's not been able to go and delight in His presence. You might say, well, what's the big deal? Can't He just worship where He is? For us, it doesn't matter where we are, right? We church, we come for corporate worship on Sunday morning. But you can worship God at your home. You can worship God uh, during the week, right? There's no limitation to place. There's no limitation to time. Why can't He do that here? Well, remember in the Old Testament that God's presence dwelt very particularly at the temple. Right? Now, God is omnipresent. They believe that in the Old Testament too. He's everywhere. Right? There's no place where God's presence is not in existence, is not felt, or is not known. But in a very particular sense, in a very real sense, in a very practical sense, God's Spirit resided in the temple. In a very real way. In a, in right there in the very midst of His people. And so in order for the Israelites to go and to worship God properly, they were to appear at the temple. That was the place of proper worship. That was the only place that Israelites could meet with God. God dwelt at the temple purposefully so that Israelites could meet Him and worship Him and enjoy His presence there in that place. In fact, the Old Testament forbids any Israelite from worshiping God away from the temple. The danger of that was if you worship God away from the temple, it, led, it, it could very easily lead into idolatry. It could lead to the corruption of the true worship of God. It would be an invitation to bring in other idols. And so going to the temple was a big deal because that was the only place where one could meet with God. Well, the psalmist here lives in the far north of Israel at the headwaters of the Jordan River. And because of that, he is far away from Jerusalem and the temple. If you go to verse 6. He says, My soul is cast down within me, and therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. He is far to the north, dozens of miles away. He's been hindered from making that journey down to Jerusalem to worship God. And so because he can't go to Jerusalem, he cannot go to the temple. He cannot worship God. He's been cut off from God. And because he's been cut off from God, he despairs. He feels hopeless. He is in great sorrow. What's preventing him from going? Well, he mentions his enemies throughout the psalm. In fact, in Psalm 42, verse 9, he says, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? 
Then they get in Psalm 43, verse 2. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? So his enemies, we don't know what exactly they're doing, but his enemies, the psalmist's enemies, which are God's enemies, are keeping the psalmist from going to the temple, from going to Jerusalem, where he can worship God. And they seem to be delighting this. This is very purposeful for them, because if you look at Psalm 42, verse 3, they're taunting him. My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? And then again in verse 10, as with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? He can't go to the temple. They've hindered him in some way, and they're taunting him. They're mocking him. Where is your God? Where is your God to help you? Where is your God to deal with us? Where is your God to defend you so that you may go and worship him as you delight in doing? When, in fact, when the psalmist here prays for God's intervention, he asks God to act against the ungodly people who are oppressing him. So Psalm 43, verse 1, Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. Again, he doesn't specify how they are doing this, just that they are. So by preventing the psalmist from worshiping God at the temple, this, his enemies are effectively cutting him off from God. So why does that lead him to despair? What's the big deal about going to worship God at the temple? Well, the psalmist loves God. He loves meeting with God. He delights in the very presence of God. In fact, he opens the psalm with a beautiful and profound metaphor to describe his love for God. Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2. As a deer pants for flowing streams of water, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? So like a parched deer desperate for a stream of water in the midst of a drought, so the psalmist earnestly and desperately yearns for God's presence. And as the cool, fresh water slakes the deer's thirst, so the living God, the God who gives life, the God who enlivens the psalmist, the God who sustains his life, he refreshes him and he enlivens his soul. In fact, notice that the word soul appears there in verse 2, right? My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. So in the depths of his being, the psalmist yearns for God. And he will not be satisfied. At the core of his being, at the center of his existence, he will not be satisfied until he is in the presence of God. In fact, we can see the joy he derives from worship, the joy he derives from delighting in God, the joy he derives from going to meet with God in a couple of places in Psalm 43, verse 4. He says, Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. And also in Psalm 42, verse 4, These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go to the throng and lead them in the procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. So he describes God as his exceeding joy. He remembers the times of joy and gladness when he used to lead the worshipers up to the temple. All along the way, along the procession, singing songs of praise and shouting glad shouts of praise to God, celebrating the great festivals of the Lord. And it's that memory that at once sort of buoys his heart, right? He's lifted up the joy of the Lord. And at the next moment, it deflates him. He delights in the joy that he derives from worship that he experienced in times past, but his heart is crushed now because he is prevented from experiencing that same joy. Because his desire is to be with the Lord and because he's been cut off 
from having that desire satisfied, he feels rejected and forsaken by God. So Psalm 42, verse 9, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? And Psalm 43, verse 2, for you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? So he feels rejected and forsaken by God. He feels cut off from the very source of his life. All right, Psalm 42, verse 2. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? The one thing that satisfied him, the one thing that brought him joy has been taken from him. And so he despairs. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Well, that leads me to my first observation about this psalm. And it's this. We despair when we are cut off from God. We despair when we are cut off from God. What the psalmist so beautifully captures about the relationship with God in verses 1 and 2 applies to us directly. Does your heart, is it, is it buoyed up? Is it rejoice when you hear, as the deer pants for the flowing streams of water, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Was that resonating in your heart this morning as you were waking up and getting yourself ready to make your way to church today? Man, I get to go to be with God's people to celebrate and worship God. I get to be in His presence among them. I get to hear His Word. I get to sing His praise. The first two verses here beautifully captures that relationship with God. It, it, it reminds us that God created us for relationship with Him. He created us to love Him and to desire Him and to delight in Him and to be satisfied with Him. He created us to thirst for Him in the same way that the panting deer thirst for the flowing streams. The psalmist's desire here in Psalm 42 and 43, it should be every person's desire. And his prayer should be and can be and must be every person's prayer. The circumstances that keep us from meeting God and delighting in Him are different, of course, right? Typically, they are not enemies that keep us from coming to church on Sunday or from worshiping God if we're worshiping Him at home and private worship on Monday or family worship on Thursday, whatever that may look like. But that experience is universal. When we are not able to worship, when we are not able to delight in God. If you're a Christian, think back to the time, to a time, to the time when you were not a Christian. Or if you're not a Christian even now, this would be true for you. What we need to understand here is that the disconnection, the disruption, the reason why we are cut off from God is because of our sin. Sin cuts us off from relationship with God. By our sin, we exchange a love for God with a love for ourselves. We replace a desire for God with a desire for other things, things other than God. And rather than finding satisfaction in God, we look to satisfaction in everything else that life has to offer. And so it's no wonder that we feel despair. We feel hopeless. We've cut ourselves off from the living God, the God who gives life. By cutting ourselves off from the living God, it leads to us being downcast, right? Again, apart from God, we go looking for hope in everything else the world offers, and we find that it's all bankrupt. 
And what does it do? It leaves us in despair. It causes us to be downcast. It causes us to be turmoiled in our innermost being. So if you've come in this morning to church and you're not a Christian, understand that it's important to recognize that the reason why you're cut off from God is your own sin. And that issue must be dealt with before you can be restored to a relationship with God. And for those of us who are Christians, we've turned from our sins, we've trusted in Christ, we understand that God has wonderfully taken care of the sin problem so that no longer are we under God's wrath, no longer are we disconnected from God because of our sin. God sent His Son into the world to conquer our sin, to conquer the power of sin, to conquer the power of death, to redeem us from our sinfulness, to redeem us from Satan's imprisonment, to to redeem us from temptation in order that we might be brought into a new and living relationship with Him so that we could live according to our created purpose, so that we could love God, so that we could enter into fellowship with Him. He saved us so that we might delight in Him and be satisfied with Him. But we understand all too well the reality of this psalm as well, right? We've been talking about this on Wednesday nights. How, on the one hand, we've been saved, gloriously saved, right? We've been redeemed from sin. The power of sin and death has been broken in our lives. And yet we understand that there is still sin that we fall into. We still do sinful things. There is this disconnect. There is this tension between what God has saved us to be and what we still do. And so a psalm like this still resonates with us. The psalmist was a member of the faithful covenant community. He was a faithful member of that community. And yet he despaired because he was cut off from God. Now, the source of his problem is different from the source of our problems. But we need to understand that because of what Christ has done and because of the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we are not cut off from God in the same way. But we still despair. We become depressed. We feel hopeless. Why? Why are we cut off from God in a relational sense? Why is that relationship sometimes tense, right? Why is it feel disruptive? Well, depression and despair are prompts that something is wrong. God did not create us to be downcast or to despair. These are certainly realities that are the result of the fall, but they are also indicators of a problem, whatever that problem may be. And they are reminders to us to look to God. When we face depression, when we feel hopelessness, We need to examine the cause. And while there may be and probably are physical and emotional elements to depression and despair, fundamentally the root issues of our hopelessness, the root issues of our despair are spiritual. And we need to address those spiritual issues. And they'll be different for every situation, right? Is our despair the result of ongoing unrepentant sin? If you're a Christian living in ongoing unrepentant sin, you should expect that your relationship with God is not going to be rosy, right? Is that sin? That sin is causing you to be despairing, causing you to be hopeless. Is it a failure to walk in the truth? Is it a failure to trust God? Is it some hurt you've closed off from God so that you might not receive healing and restoration? Is it a fear of the world or frustration with the world? Is it things that are simply out of your control that you're trying to control? Again, I don't know what these issues are individually for each of you, but these symptoms indicate a disconnect from God. We despair when we are cut off from God. 
And I would just say this too before we move on, is that if you find yourself here in the same place that the psalmist is in his shoes, it's okay to lament. It's okay to lament. I think one of the reasons why God has given the psalms to us is so that we might grieve and lament in a biblical way, in a God-honoring way. So when you are despairing, when you are distressed, when you are grieved, when you are suffering, pray this prayer. Make it your own. Pray what God has revealed to you, what God has given to you to process that, that, that lament. But then again, don't stop there. I think this is a problem with sort of a, maybe an element of Christianity today. Sort of become avant-garde for Christians to like be in this constant sense of mourning, right? Oh, this bad thing happened and we just want to sit in our sackcloth and ashes and just want to, just want to emote, just want to lament, just want to mourn. And it's kind of like there's no moving beyond that. It's kind of become popular for, for Christians just to lament of all the things that are bad that are happening in our world. The psalmist doesn't stop here, does he? He confesses it. Why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? That's his, that's his question that reveals the problem. But he doesn't stop there. He moves on to exhort himself with a hopeful exhortation. Hope in God, he says, for I shall again Praise Him, my salvation and my God. Let's consider His exhortation here. We see it three times in verse 5, verse 11, and in Psalm 43, verse 5. Here, the psalmist is commanding himself. Notice you see, he's using an imperative. Hope in God. He's commanding himself. He's willing himself to hope in God. He commands himself to hope in God. We see three things in this exhortation. First, we see the, the reality of hope. You know, what is hope really? We tend to think of hope in a secular way, in a worldly way, which is more or less, I'm not in control of something that may happen, therefore, I wish it to happen. It's almost as if hope is, a, is, is wishful thinking, right? Now, I wouldn't normally say this. It's a beautiful day outside, so let it, let it be. But if I wanted it to rain, I could say, well, I hope it rains today. I have no control over whether it rains or not, right? Hope is just simply a wish. It's a desire. That's not what this kind of hope is. Biblical hope is a confident expectation that God will do what he has promised to do. What he says he will do, he promises to do. And biblical hope is confidently expecting that. It's an anticipation in God and in his promises that they are and will become reality. And so that's why the psalmist here calls himself to hope in God. Because God is the object of our hope. Hope is rooted in the person and character of God, in His sovereignty and authority, in His righteousness and goodness, in His power and omnipotence. Hope is rooted in who God is. Hope is also rooted in the promises that He has made to His people. God has spoken. He has made real promises, some of which He has already delivered, and others that He will deliver. So hope is like faith in this sense. Hope trusts God to do all that he says that he will do and expects that it will happen in God's time. That's the reality of hope. A biblical, confident expectation like faith, trusting God to do what he says he's going to do. This exhortation also shows us the substance of hope. What does the psalmist hope for? He hopes that he will praise God again, just as he has done in the past. Again, notice the certainty of that hope. In Psalm 42, verse 5, he says, 
hope in God, for I shall again praise Him. Right? He's hoping, he's trusting that he's going to be able to go and worship God again. In Psalm 43, verse 4, Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. So the psalmist here is confident in God. He's confident in God's promises. He's confident in God's purposes. He's not ambivalent, right? He's very resolute. He expects God to make good on his promise that he will, that the psalmist will praise him once again with God's people. That he will be able to go back to the temple, he will join his covenant community, and he will offer praise to God, he will delight in God, he will rejoice in God. God will satisfy his gnawing thirst by permitting him once again to return to the temple to worship God and delight in him. But even though he confidently expects that day to come, it's still future, right? So how does he hope in God in the present moment? He's cut off. He understands God will let him go back again in the future. But what's going to sustain him? How does he act on his hope here in this present moment when the promise of God does not seem to be reality? A few things. First, he remembers God. He remembers God. Psalm 42, verse 6. He says, My soul is cast out within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mazar. See the word therefore again? We saw that one last week, right? It's a connecting word. It connects two thoughts together. Whenever you see therefore, always ask yourself what it's there for. My soul is cast down within me. Reality. What's happening? Current status. Therefore, response. I will remember you. Who is he going to remember? God. He's going to remember God. Even though he's distant from the temple, even though he's hindered from returning to worship, the psalmist here still meditates on the truth of who God is. And it's his meditation upon this truth that fuels his hope. I think this is one of the reasons why he prays for God to send his light and truth in Psalm 43, verse 3. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. We do battle with despair with the truth and the light of God's Word. We do battle with despair, with truth, with the light of who God is, with understanding His character, with understanding His nature, with understanding His promises, and believing that what He has said about our situation is true. So He remembers God. He remembers who He is. He also acts on His hope by praying. In Psalm 42, verse 8, he says, By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. Now, this whole thing, is this, this whole psalm is a prayer, right? But he specifically calls out prayer, mentions prayer. He prays to God because God is sovereign. He trusts God. He, he puts the situation in God's hands, and he waits upon God to answer him in his timing. He also acts on his hope by singing. Right? He sings the truth about God. In fact, he remembered in, in Psalm 42, verse 4, the times when he led the procession up to the temple with songs of praise. You see that? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Those songs of praise acknowledged the glory of God. It, remember, it reminded him of what God had done in the past for his people. It reminded them of promises of what he would do for them in the future. Songs saturated in biblical truth buoy us up in the midst of despair. What did we hear this morning called to worship? There's a song on Adam's heart this week he was meditating upon. Kind of lifted him up, right? 
Bruce brings us this music each week. And I don't know how many times I leave this place. And during the week, I'm singing the songs we sing on Sunday morning. Because they're very encouraging. God is using the truth. Of, that's why I love when Bruce is picking out our songs to be biblically saturated. Because it's the truth that we need. We don't need empty emotionalism. We need the truth. It is the truth that sustains us through the grind of life. And so these biblically saturated songs buoy us up in the midst of despair, buoyed him up while he was hindered from worshiping God. So while the psalmist waits for the day to come when he can return to the temple and meet with God, he remembers, he, he, he remembers who God is. He satisfies himself in the truth of who God is and the reality of who God is, what God has promised and how God showed himself faithful in the past. We also see in this exhortation the basis for hope. Why should the psalmist hope in God? How do we know that he's going to come through? He says in verse 5, Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. Well, the basis for his hope is who God is. He says that God is my salvation. Or to say it another way, God saves. God saves me. He is my Savior. And we know this in a couple of different ways. First of all, who is he praying to? The psalmist is not praying to Baal. He's not praying to some other foreign deity. He is praying to God. Why? Because he believes that God is his salvation. But he also petitions God to deliver him specifically in this present crisis. Notice in Psalm 43, verse 1, that he pleads with God to vindicate him and defend his cause. Vindicate me. Come to my defense, he says. Show that I am righteous. Help me. Vindicate me, O God. Defend my cause against an ungodly people from the deceitful and unjust man deliver me or rescue me or save me right the psalmist has suffered injustice at the hands of his enemies they have acted deceitfully and unjustly by by forbidding what god had ordained for the psalmist and so he pleads with god to take up his cause and defend him against the injustice of his enemies and so because god is his salvation the psalmist hopes in god he confidently expects that god will save him and so he prays that God will send his light and truth and break the oppression of his enemies and lead, them back, lead him back to the temple where he can meet with God again. Psalm 43, verse 3. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. God is his salvation. God is also his God. His basis for hoping in God is because God is his God. Do you notice that? He says, hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Now, we know God is God. He is God's creator. He is God overall. He is sovereign Lord of the universe. But that God is also his God. That God is my God. We see that sense of personality, the personalization of who God is, indicative of that relationship that we have with Him. The name God that's used mostly throughout this psalm is the name El- Hebrew name Elohim. It occurs 21 times in, in this prayer. About half of those times, that name is personalized with the word my, my God. The psalmist can hope in God because this God is his God. This is the God who sustains him. This is the God who comes to his defense. This is the God with whom he has relationship. God has committed himself to the psalmist. 
And he commands his steadfast love to keep him in his covenantal care. In verse 8, By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. It's interesting to me that while the name God or Elohim occurs 21 times in this prayer, the name Lord, Yahweh, is only used once. And it's used here in verse 8 in connection with God's steadfast love. By, the, by day, the Lord commands His steadfast love. That's significant for a couple of reasons. Number one, Yahweh is the Lord's covenantal name. It's the special name that He gave to Israel. This is a name that they were to call Him because He was their covenant God and they were His covenant people. But in the, in the relationship of this covenant, what has God done? He has shown His steadfast love to His people. He exists in relationship with them, and that relationship is founded upon His steadfast love. We, we, again, we read about this morning. I will sing of the Lord's steadfast love. I will sing of His covenantal love. I will sing of His unending love. I will sing of His commit, committed love to me. The psalmist here understands that he is in covenant relationship with God. And therefore, he is assured that God will act on his behalf and will return him to the temple where he will meet with God again. Why? Because that's where God's covenant people meet him. He's a member of the faith community. He is one who has received God's steadfast love. Therefore, God will bring him back to his people to worship God. God is a covenant-keeping God. Therefore, the psalmist hopes in God. And so the psalmist exhorts himself. He, he wills himself to hope in God. And that leads me to the second observation about this psalm, and that is this. Christ is our only hope. Christ is our only hope. When we despair, we must hope in Christ because Christ is our only hope. If you're not a Christian, please understand that your only hope is Christ. Christ is your only hope to deal with the sin that has cut you off from God. And that's because your sin is an affront to God. Your sin is a rebellion against God's divine decrees. It's a violation of His holiness. It's a distrust of His goodness. Sin requires God's justice upon you. There must be due punishment for your sin. Because we have no resources within ourselves, we stand condemned before a righteous and holy God. The only hope that we can have to stand before God, the only hope that we can have that God will deal with our sin is that He would send His Son to die for us. God made a way for Him to spare the sinner but judge the sin. God sent His own Son into the world. The one whom we're thinking about more as we're moving closer to Easter this Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus came into the world to bear the punishment of our sin. And when He died upon the cross, God judged our sins in Jesus so that we could be forgiven and so that relationship that God intended for us to have with Him could be restored. And what I love about this is it reflects to us even the life of Christ Himself. Jesus was cast down for us. Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8 says, He was oppressed. And he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. He was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. 
In Mark 15:34, we read that at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, Jesus doesn't quote Psalm 42. He actually quotes Psalm 22. But he's fulfilling the spirit of the psalm here, Psalm 42 and 43. Jesus was forsaken and rejected by God. He was cut off from God when he died on the cross. And yet through it all, though he was downcast and in deep turmoil, though on the brink of despair, what did Jesus do? He hoped in God. He confidently expected that God would bring him salvation and prove that he was indeed his father. And how did God demonstrate that? He raised Jesus from the dead. God raised Jesus from the dead. He saved him from the grave, saved him from the, the corruption, the Psalm 16 will say. And he exalted him to the highest place where he would inherit his promised glory and reign over his kingdom forever and ever. And so because Jesus hoped in his Father, we also hope in God. We hope specifically in God. We hope in God through Christ. Jesus fulfills our hope. He transforms it from wishful thinking to confident expectation. We have a confident assurance that God is our salvation and our God because He has proven it already in Jesus. For through Jesus, we are no longer cut off from God, but we are restored to a right relationship with Him, and we will share this relationship with Him for all eternity. I love Psalm 43, verse 4, because I think it sort of broadcasts and looks forward to our eternal destiny. He says, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. So if you're a Christian, hope in Christ. Turn from your sins that separate you from God and trust in Christ in whom all hope is found. Christ is our only hope. And if you are a Christian, how do we deal with despair now? When we do the very same thing we do when we first trusted in Christ, we hope in Him. That exhortation is just as much for you today as it was in the day when you first believed. No matter what causes you to despair, hope in Christ. Because of hope, we understand that the situations that cause us to despair are only light and momentary. They pale in comparison to the salvation of God and the promises of God that are ours in Christ. We must look to Christ. We must see the reality of what God's salvation has done for us. We must rest in His sovereignty, in His authority, in His righteousness, in His goodness, and in His love. God is a covenant-keeping God. We must confidently expect Him to do all that He has said that we will do, that He will do. And as we hope, we continue to trust in Him. We continue to walk faithfully through the trials that afflict us. So no matter what the source of your despair is, hope in Christ. Because of what He has done for us in His death and resurrection, Christ will make our hope a reality in His perfect time. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise Him my salvation, and my God. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for hope.
There's so much in our lives and so much in our world that would cause us to be hopeless. We pray for your forgiveness for being consumed in our circumstances and not being consumed in the truth of your word. We pray that your truth this morning would buoy us up, Lord, that it would restore unto us the joy of our salvation. I don't know, Lord, what your people are dealing with this morning, but for those that are feeling cut off, those who are feeling downcast and turmoiled, we pray, Lord, that your word would help them to look to Christ, to hope in him, that all of the promises that you have been, that you've given to us are fulfilled in him, and that we can take great joy and delight in what he has done for us through the gospel. And that because of him, because we are in him, nothing can separate us from his love. Help us to rest in him this morning. Lord, we pray for those that may be here this morning who don't know you. We pray that in the midst of whatever despair or hopelessness they may be going through right now, that you would help them to see, Lord, that only Christ gives us true hope. Help them not to bounce from one thing to the next. Help them to see that Christ is our hope, that Christ is our solution, that Christ fulfills what you have destined for us because you've created us and because you've sent him for us for the gospel. We pray, we praise you, O Lord, for hope. We thank you that we have hope in you. Help us to walk in that hope, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.